start with entrepreneurs. One thing we can say is that in every community in the United States has entrepreneurs. Not every community has a major university or a major corporation, but every community in the United States, no matter how poor, no matter how distressed, has people that are entrepreneurs and that have the entrepreneurial spirit. So finding those people in your community is a very important part of getting started. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Our guest today is Eric Pages. Eric is the president of Entree Works Consulting, an economic development consulting and policy development firm focused on helping communities and organizations achieve their entrepreneurial potential. Eric, welcome and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. And did I did I get that right? Entree Works. Yeah, Entree Works Consulting. So, Eric, um, let's start with you a little. Let's talk about how. How did you end up focusing your work in this niche of economic development and entrepreneurship? Well, you know, I worked for some time for the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City, which is a big funder of entrepreneurial development programs. And so I drank the Kool-Aid there a little bit, I think. You know, I think I come at entrepreneurship from a slightly different perspective of most people. I'm not one of these people that uh, adores Bill Gates or adores Steve Jobs. I'm interested in entrepreneurship because I think it's an economic development strategy that's available to all communities, unlike some others say, you know, a high-tech development strategy. So that's why I'm a big fan of entrepreneurship, and I think it's an economic development strategy that can fit in almost any kind of community. Fantastic. So your session at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference is titled Reinventing Local Economies with Place-Based Approaches, Examples from Coal Country. From looking at your website, you worked in a lot of places around the country, in a lot of communities that have needed to reinvent themselves. When you think about the biggest success stories that you've run into, what, what were the keys to their success? Yeah, that's a very great, that's a great question. And what's really interesting, I think, when you look at these challenged communities, whether you had a steel plant closure, a coal mine closure, or a defense plant closure, you know, the process of recovery is pretty similar. And I do think that there's a couple things that uh, successful communities do. One is that they engage everybody in the community. It's not just a handful of leaders doing it. The other thing, and this is really the biggest challenge is for economic development, folks is, you know, you need to, what we like to say is hit for singles, not for home runs. Don't try to replace all of the lost jobs in one fell swoop because that's not possible. Recovery from an economic shock takes time and you have to be in there for the long haul and you've got to rebuild yourself one job at a time. That's the way to do it. And, and, you know, I've, I've had a chance to work in a lot of places in this country where economic changes uh, have displaced a lot of people. And what I see a lot in economic development is there tends to be, there tends to be that kind of home run mentality, right? There's a lot of what is, a lot of what the economic development world seems to do is chase after big employee employers or companies. And, 
you know, it seems like that's not the most successful approach. So, so why is it that the approach that you're taking isn't more widely applied? Well, it's becoming more widely applied, or at least I, that's what I'm telling myself. I think, you know, the real, th- the real problem you have there is that you have a clash between the political cycle and, and the business cycle. So most elected officials get elected, come up for election every two to four years, and most of these economic development strategies are in a five to year, ten year time frame. So you have this disconnect there, and it's a brave politician or it's a very far thinking politician that, that will say, "I want to invest in something that's going to occur you know, four years after after my term is over." So I, really, to me, there's there's other factors at work, but that's a key one. I see. And can you can you share with our audience an example of a community that you know that's been successful with this kind of approach? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of them. I mean, the one that it gets a lot of hype, but I think it gets a lot of hype for a reason is Asheville, North Carolina. Another one is Chattanooga, Tennessee. These are two places that uh, have really been investing in entrepreneurship for a decade, if even longer, in the case of Asheville, North Carolina. And, you know, now, oh, it's an overnight success story. Asheville has gotten hot. But they've been working on redesigning their community and redeveloping their community for 15 to 20 years around entrepreneurship, around food, around crafts, and around tourism. Uh, So it's been a long, slow process. But uh, it's an overnight success story that took 20 years. In your title of your your session at the New Partners for Smart Growth, Place-Based Approaches, Explain to our audience what a place-based approach is. Yeah, again, a very good question. When we look at economic development, you can have a place-based strategy that tries to make a place better for business or for individuals. We also have a a people-based strategy where you provide education and training to people and give them the skills you want. Most of the programs that we have in the United States, public programs at least, are people-based programs primarily education and training programs. We don't invest as much as we should in place-based programs that are trying to improve the quality of life in a place or improve the business prospects of a place so that every community, no matter where you live, you can have uh, economic opportunity. And the other part of the title is that examples from coal country. So do you have an example of someplace in coal country that is you know, taking this kind of approach? Yeah, in fact, I'm heading off for Sunday down to Southwest Virginia, down to uh, Wise, Virginia, which is very deep in the coal fields of Southwest Virginia. It's about as far southwest as you can get in the state of Virginia. And they've got a whole host of interesting things that they're doing. They've got an entrepreneurship strategy. They've got a tourism strategy. They're even pushing now to make that area a place for testing of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, because there are very few areas in the United States that are approved for flights of drones just because of planes and, you know, other other air, other things in the airspace. But this is an area that's relatively close to population centers but is, is quite isolated, and so it's a good place to be doing drone testing and drone development. So it's a, got a, a bit of a technology angle to it as well. If you're one of our listeners in a community that needed to reinvent itself, what kind of advice would you give folks? How should they get started, and, and what are the most important steps they need to take? The most important step is to get as many people engaged in the community as possible. So spreading a wide net, we often say you need to have all hands on deck when you're trying to rebuild a community. So that's very important. The second one would be really, and again, my company is called EntreWorks for a reason, is to start with entrepreneurs. One thing we can say is that in every community, every community in the United States has entrepreneurs. Not every community has a major university or a major corporation, but every community in the United States, no matter how poor, no matter how distressed, has people that are entrepreneurs and that have the entrepreneurial spirit. 
So finding those people in your community is a very important part of getting started. And then how do you support those folks? How do you, how do you leverage that entrepreneurial talent? Yeah, again, a very good question. One of the great misconceptions in, in, uh, when we think about entrepreneurs is that we think it's all about money. And that it's, you know, boy, if we only had venture capital, if we only had lots of dollars, entrepreneurs could be successful. But what we found from an extensive amount of research, and this is particularly true in rural America, is that the things that entrepreneurs are most interested in are a community and a culture that supports them. So you can get many benefits just from talking them up and cheerleading about entrepreneurs. Second thing that matters to them a great deal is talent. So helping them find the people whether it's volunteer help, whether it's uh, good employees, whether it's connecting them to coaches and mentors that can then help someone start a business. So that talent and the connections and those, that culture, those are really the most important factors to entrepreneurial success. As the company gets bigger, money starts to matter. But when, when you're in those early stages, those other factors like talent and connections and support in, in all of its forms matter most. This need for reinvention uh, seems to be, it's a kind of a rolling thing, right? right? Even economies that are doing well, changes in our economy, changes in technology, what was successful at one point becomes less successful. How can communities make themselves more resilient? How can they avoid the need to reinvent themselves uh, or the pain of the reinvention? Is there, should they be encouraging that kind of entrepreneurship earlier? Yes, they should. And I think, you know, you've hit at, to me, that question that you just asked, that's the crux of the whole matter for us over the next decade, next several decades, in the sense that we can no longer be preparing people to work in the widget industry or in the web design industry. We need to prepare people to have the flexibility and the creativity to move across multiple disciplines and multiple areas. So you really are almost trying to create what I call a plug-and-play capability with people in the community so that when this widget industry goes up, people can capitalize on that. When the industry cycle goes down, they're ready, prepared, and flexible and resilient and able to move into new industries. So it really is a new way of thinking. So that's one thing to do is to sort of prepare people in a different manner so that they're more creative, innovative, collaborative, prepared for teamwork. The other strategy is to not put all your eggs in one basket. And again, so our, our panel at the conference in St. Louis is going to be focusing a lot on what we call economic diversification in the sense of making multiple kinds of investments so that you're supporting multiple industries. So if steel's down, textiles are up. If textiles are down, steel is up, just to use a metaphor. So those are really two ways to be thinking about how to prepare more resilient communities from an economic standpoint. So this next question might be a little, this is kind of a high-level question. We've had a recent guest, a couple of recent guests who were talking about autonomous vehicles. And there's this huge push for technology to be replacing people, whether it be people working in retail. Amazon is working on employee-less grocery stores. Do you have a sense that we can actually, our economy can actually transition as we lose more of these kind of blue-collar jobs is it possible to build an economy that's going to keep all of these folks gainfully employed? Well, I think we're in a situation, and you know, we've opened up a whole can of worms with this question, but I think the answer is no. If we, we talk about we're going to have traditional employment relationships, the, the, the eight-hour day and uh, it, you know, the pensions and the, you know, the sort of the old employment situation that, we, that our parents faced, I'm not sure I've ever faced this situation. I mean, I think we're going to need new ways of working, job sharing, 
we may need to think about, you know, how do we more actively about how do we transition people between different kinds of careers and different kinds of industries as, as there's more churn and there's more changeover. Um, all of these kinds of things. People are the, the way that we work is going to be much different. Um, and so we're going to need to think about different ways to deal with that, different kinds of pay structures. We may even need to think about things like a universal basic income so that if people are working fewer hours, uh, they, they can still have um, you know, wages and income that allow them to, to, to lead a good life. So the, the current the new administration, the, the Trump administration, they're convinced, or at least they've been um, campaigning on the idea that by better trade deals and um, a better tax structure, they're going to create a lot, a lot of great jobs and a lot more robust uh, economy. Is your sense that they're on the right track? Are they going to be able to, to achieve that objective, do you think? Well, it's too soon to tell, but I, can, I will say that I'm not feeling particularly confident because there's not a whole ton of evidence that um, firms make a lot of major locations and investment decisions over the long term based on, on tax policy. Uh, it can make a difference at the margins, and certainly if we look at uh, you know the differences between two countries, uh, if there's major changes in differences in tax regimes, that may affect firm behavior. But within the United States, you know, I'm not sure, you know, we're really playing at the margins with taxes and trade deals, you know, to save a hundred jobs here and a hundred jobs there. I mean, how can you be against saving a hundred jobs, uh, at least, you know, over the short term, but uh, that's the, what we need is really a different way of doing investments and a different way of providing education and training to people. That's the way that we're going to have long-term prosperity. That's just really um, papering over some of the problems that we have now, blaming it on taxes and regulation. I'm going to go in two directions on this question. So you, the title of your session at the New Partners for Smart Growth is about coal country. The other thing is I think that through energy jobs, they're going to create a lot of employment in the United States. Do you have any sense that that's um, the coal economy has the opportunity to come back? I don't believe that the coal economy has the opportunity to come back. I mean, I think we can slow the, slow the downturn perhaps. But really, let's think about this. I mean, the, the diagnosis from many of the people in the Trump campaign, let me say, was that, you know, this is a problem that's, that began four years ago or began eight years ago under, you know, under the Obama, the two administrations of President Obama. And we know that's not the case. If you look at the data, it shows that the coal industry has been declining for 20 or 30 years. Uh, that doesn't mean it's any less painful for the people of that region, but this is a, you know, multi-decade downturn in that industry. And it's kind of driven by, I would think, my sense is it's been driven by technology and by natural gas. Yes, of course. Right. And there's, you know, on the flip side of that, that's a large part of the coal country has has potential in shale gas. Now, I know not all of your listeners may think that that's, that's a solution, but you have a major Marcellus shale resources in the state of West Virginia and Appalachian, Ohio, and Western Pennsylvania, of course. Um, but yeah, so those are the factors that are really causing the downturn in the coal industry, more so than is environmental regulation. But uh, let me just, uh, one other flip side of it, when, when we talk about energy, clearly alternative energy has huge opportunities in coal country and around the, the entire United States. And in fact, um, the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is a big investor in, in coal country, but of course there's coal regions outside of Appalachia, they have five industries that they view as prime opportunities for coal country, and advanced energy is one of them, which would include wind, solar, and you know other alternative fuels. Yeah. So one of the things I you know I wonder about the people who 
our listeners who care a great deal about sustainability and alternative energy, how what can they be doing? How could they be helping the people in coal country make an easier transition so that they might have more political support for an alternative energy economy? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I do think you know what's really needed there is is the basic blocking and tackling of economic development, continued and consistent investments in helping those communities reposition themselves. That means training, you know, significant upturn in resources for education and training programs, significant uptick in investment in social services programs, and a significant uptick in programs that allow them to, to redesign their economic development strategies and to make key infrastructure investments. The issue you have in coal country is that it's not just the decline of coal. It's that the decline of coal is combined with population loss, with major social trauma around the opioid epidemic, and around a workforce that does not have the skills and training and opportunities to succeed in the 21st century. All of those things create a perfect storm. So even if we reversed all of the decline in the coal industry, the situation of m- many of these communities would still be particularly challenging. So it's a, it's a multifaceted problem. And coal is simply just one symptom of, of that problem. So, as you, you know, as you suggested, the, the problems in coal country and the problems with, with employment more largely or the, the struggles of the, of the middle class or the working class in, in the United States has been going on for it's – re- it's not a recent problem. It's been, it's been in the works for 30-plus years, and it's cut across multiple administrations, Republicans, Democrats – what would you propose? What what kind of national level policies do we need to move our economy forward that we that we don't have currently that that neither the Republicans or the Democrats have put forward? Well, I'm going to give you my personal, partially informed opinion. Let me say this, but based on what I see, I mean, I do think we need to think about rethinking of the employer employee contracts. So as more and more people are working in the independent workforce, the gig economy, uh, the independent contract workforce, we need to provide a social safety net to those kinds of workers. They've become a huge part of the economy now. In most communities, they're about 30, 40% of the workforce right now, independent workers that have um, you know, pay their own unemployment insurance, have a very limited social safety net. Something happens to them, their health, they get hit by a bus, um, disaster looms. So we need to deal with that part of the workforce. We also need to make significant new investments in training and uh, workforce development so that when when we have these transitions, which are inevitable, these economic transitions, which are inevitable and are likely to increase their pace over the coming decades, that people can make the transition from uh, one career, one area of expertise to another. People need to have the resources to go out and get retrained, and we don't do that now. And if we compare the amount of investment we make in the United States in these kinds of retraining and job transition programs, we are the lowest of any developed economy in the world, by far. And do you think those investments, the investments we are making, do we need a better system, a better delivery system of that kind of training? We need a system. I mean, yes, we need a system. We have a system in place, but we really need a better resource system. A lot of the tools and the resources are in place. A lot of it, you know, we know a lot of what to do, but the, you know, there are issues, of course, for the you know the sixty-year-old worker who's worked in a factory his or her entire life. Retraining them to gain a job at the you know, their old wage is extremely difficult, even in the best circumstances. 
But the main challenge, I would say, is not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't put any resources behind it. Gotcha. And is there anything else that you would suggest that we need to do to allow for this kind of easier and faster reinvention of communities? So it would also help that we have a bit more of an early warning mechanism about about what's going on in the industries. And this is a very boring and wonky topic to people. But in terms of our understanding of what's going on in these communities from an economic data standpoint, again, as a consultant, I live with this data. I mean, it's, it's um, often embarrassing how poor the quality of the information we have about what goes on in these economies. And so, you know, again... It's not something you put on a bumper sticker, but continuing to fund data agencies that provide us essential information, I can't overstate how important that is. So that we have these early warning mechanisms, we can understand where people could be challenged in the future. And um, where can folks learn more about your work and um, learn more about entrepreneurial um, economic development? Well, thank you for that question. I'll give a couple of places that I would suggest. First would be our firm's website, which is entreworks.net. I would also encourage you to take a look at, uh, I'm also a senior fellow at an organization called the Center for Rural Entrepreneurship. So that's also a great resource. In addition, the Kauffman Foundation is a great source for information on entrepreneurship, all of its aspects. And last but not least, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the the project that we're going to be discussing at the St. Louis Conference is a project that's funded by the Economic Development Administration and the Appalachian Regional Commission, but it's run by the National Association of Counties and the National Association of Development Organizations. And these are two organizations that work with local governments and are among the strongest advocates for smart economic development strategies. Eric, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I think you know, you're at the crux of what I think is, is such an essentially important topic for most of the communities in the United States. How communities are going to maintain their economic vitality in a very rapidly changing global economy. I think particularly with lots of technology change, I think communities are going to have to get a lot better at building their own economies. And I think you're kind of at the cutting edge of that. So really appreciate you spending the time to be with us today. And I look forward to seeing your session at the New Partners Conference. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, please keep up the good work. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us next week on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com. Or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.